What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Do you have any idea why I asked you to come here today? No. No. Well, Mark, do you have any idea who I am? Is that you, Josh? Didn't recognize me with a fake nose, did you? (laughs) I guess not. This week, we'll talk fake noses and wrestling and murder with our review of Foxcatcher starring Channing Tatum, Mark Ruffalo, and Steve Carell. You know what they say, fake noses lead to wrestling, wrestling leads to murder. Of course. That's how it goes. Plus this week's top five, 2014 Discoveries. Actors, directors, and others who made a fine first impression this past year. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code FILM. You're listening to Film Spotting. Some faces are new, some are just new to us. We'll share our favorite cinematic discoveries of 2014 later in the show. Plus, another installment of the segment that's sweeping podcasting. Larson recommends. <laughs> I hear it's even bigger than cereal. <laughs> but first, Adam and I wrestled over who had to do the fox catcher setup. Let's just say he has one heck of a choke slam. Do you have any idea who I am? Some rich guy calls you on the phone. I wanted to speak with you about what you hope to achieve. What do you hope to achieve, Mark? I want to be the best in the world. There's a key for you. Also, big house is off limits. Okay. Coach DuPont has a vision. He would like Foxcatcher to be the official training site for the national team. What's he get out of all this? What are you thinking? This is it. This is all that we've that we've ever wanted. Mark, you have been living in your brother's shadow your entire life. It's your time now. Promise you, I'll give you everything I have. About a year and a half ago, Adam, on episode 421, we listed our top five dramatic performances by comic actors. You had Tom Hanks in Philadelphia as your number one. I went with Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love. Both of those are among these actors' most critically praised performances. In Sandler's case, it might be his only critically praised performance. (laughs) Might be. This is, of course, a tried-and-true path for a comedian looking to get some respect. Show your chops in a dramatic role. And so, now we have Steve Carell in Foxcatcher. Not his first serious performance, but perhaps his most serious performance. In the true crime drama from Capote director Bennett Miller, he plays John DuPont, the eccentric millionaire who sponsored Olympic gold medalist Mark Schultz, here played by Channing Tatum, in a bid for glory at the 1988 Games in Seoul. Foxcatcher is, I'd say, a most serious film, from its autumnal color palette to its dark observations about American aspiration. Was Carell the right choice for capturing what Miller and his screenwriters, E. Max Fry and Dan Futterman, were after? And if you could go back to that top five dramatic performances by comic actors list, would you put Carell on it? Well, that's really interesting to consider whether or not 
he was the right choice. I really can't envision anyone else in the role. And I guess that's probably just because having just seen it, he does seem to embody it. And he embodies it in a way that is completely in keeping with the rest of the movie, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But in terms of would it make my top five list or even an honorable mention if I could go back to that top five? It wouldn't, Josh, and not because it's not a good performance or that Carell isn't a good actor. He is a very good actor. And let's say it's not because of the nose either. The nose for me wasn't really a distraction at all after that opening scene. I think physically the nose isn't even as aggressive or in your face as his posture. The way he plays DuPont where he is always kind of hunched down and his head is tilted slightly up. So it looks like he's looking down on you a little bit while at the same time maybe trying to clear his nasal passages. If anything, Krell actually remind me here of a penguin. A little bit, kind of <laughs> I can head always dotting around, feeling like he doesn't really have much of a neck. But as I said, there is a little bit of a connection for me in how I reacted to Carell's performance and the movie overall, the experience I had with it. And I could sit here and I'm going to try to be as analytical and hopefully intelligent as I can possibly be. But the reality is, and Michael Phillips says this often on the show, sometimes you're just not on the same wavelength as a movie. There is a certain rhythm movies have that you can get into or just not really get into. And I was out of sync with Foxcatcher almost from the very beginning. There was just no point with Carell or the movie as a whole that surprised me. And Miller here, the director, Bennett Miller and Carell, they strip away all of his natural charisma to play this character, and understandably so. It seems in keeping with the type of man they're projecting anyway. Of course, I don't really know much about the real John DuPont. But then stripping away that charisma left him with a very small range of emotions to play with. There's not anywhere for him to go, unfortunately, except to be consistently awkward, creepy, and perpetually a little bit sullen and detached. He's always trying to be in control, but in a way that maybe feels... Too stuffy. The movie feels that way because of Carell's performance to some extent, but I also think that's what Bennett Miller is bringing to it. And in his defense, in Steve Carell's defense, I think as a viewer, when you know where this is all heading, as most people do know at least a little bit of the story behind the real John DuPont and this real-life crime, you're naturally over-scrutinizing everything that character says or does. It's kind of a game of when is this going to go off the rails? When's he going to lose it? And he's also not the main character. Mark Schultz is. Channing Tatum's character is really the main character. He's the one who has to and who does undergo some kind of change. But there was a certain tedium for me to Carell's performance in the movie overall that never allowed me to look any deeper into what was going on than what was happening on screen from scene to scene. And I don't mean it's all spelled out for you or there's too much dialogue and not any subtext. There's certainly subtext all over a lot of these scenes. We'll talk about some of it. But there were no moments for me where I felt like my perception of anyone was ever really being challenged. There's just this constant feeling of dread, and the movie feels like it's hitting all the scenes and all the notes it has to hit to tell the story, but without ever really gaining any momentum or ever generating any real suspense or wonder. That was my experience with it. Am I totally crazy? No, I mean, I think you're out of rhythm with the film because there's not much rhythm to it. I mean, there's not much. Once you get the beat, essentially, you've got the beat mm -hmm. from this thing. And I found that frustrating, too. But to go back to Carell before we get into the film as a whole a little bit. Uh, boy, I, I would be stronger on the performance. I also think he's a, a good actor, a dramatic actor and a comic actor. I think it's a disastrous performance mm. for the film. And the nose was a distraction for me, but I think it would have been a disastrous performance without that nose 
but it's helpful as a symbol because I think you could say the same thing of the nose that you could say of the performance in general. It's pronounced, it's exaggerated, and it's prominent. And this role dominates the film with, as you said, the same characteristics throughout. Every scene, essentially you come away thinking, boy, this guy's weird. Mm -hmm. This guy's a little weird. This guy's really weird. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just a repetition of mannerisms, yes, but the way he carries himself, that penguin manner, it's in every scene is almost the same sort of thing. And it's not so much, you know, it's okay if this guy is going to be a little mysterious and we don't quite understand everything about him. So it's not so much that he's not giving us enough layers to the character. I would argue actually that we get everything explained psychologically about him a little bit too much in this film in terms of his motivations. But what is very thin is it's almost what comedians ironically are accused of, of just playing broad caricatures. I mean, he Carell has given some comic performances, maybe even Maxwell Smart, that are more nuanced than this because he's doing different things yeah. in a given scene. And he's just not doing different things in this film. Different things happen to him. The relationship with Schultz develops in alarming ways. I didn't remember much about the real life story, so I had a little bit more suspense than you probably going in. So that held me a little bit. But still, even as you see where their relationship goes, you get the general idea and it just becomes a matter of the dead end. You know, it's going to getting to that point. But there's no new awareness about the character as the movie goes on. I couldn't agree more with that. That said, Josh, there are certainly elements here I did respond to things I did like about it, even though the movie didn't overall work for me. And I said that really right from the beginning, it didn't. That's not entirely true. I love maybe the first 10 minutes of this film. I really liked how they established the Mark Schultz character played by Tatum here right from the very beginning, how carefully but subtly we learn everything we need to know about the psychology of Mark Schultz from just a few scenes, the non-reaction from the school kids when he goes to talk to them about his path to being a gold medal winning wrestler, the little apartment he lives in, just really the bare bones nature of that, the way he, after that meeting at the school, sneaks away to McDonald's and eats in his car. Yeah. You know, he, he has to hide and you don't really know why other than he's a wrestler and a lot of times they have to watch their weight. But what is it about his psychology that makes him be the type of person who has to hide that and Mm -hmm. eat in his car? It tells you a lot about him. There's this complete sense that he's isolated and alone and living a fairly depressing life, but he's isolated and alone and living a depressing life despite being a champion, despite being someone who put in all that work, all the training, the hours, the commitment, the sacrifice, guess what? Nobody cares. Nobody really cares. If they ever cared once, they don't care anymore. They may care again if he's ever on that stage again, but that's what it will take. And it made me think about Josh, honestly, in just those opening scenes about how excited many Americans do get for the Olympics. Every four years, you get really caught up and invested in it. And then as soon as it's over, we all go back to our lives and we completely forget these men and these women who we were seemingly so invested in. I'm not really using that to say we should all care about the Olympics more or think more about Olympics. No, but it's the cycle that happens. Exactly. It speaks to this character and what what he's going through. Very strong start to this film. Perhaps my favorite moment comes in the opening 10 minutes, I think it is, where Schultz is training with his brother, played by Mark Ruffalo, and we get this delicate scene of them warming up yeah, by this I combative want to talk about that hug. Mm-hmm. And it's just, there. there's, you know, grunting and breathing and they're communicating that, but they're not. And you get this sense that there's already something 
in this relationship that's troubled. We're yeah, getting glimpses tension. of it, but we're also getting the affection, the brotherly affection there. And there is this delicate sparseness to that scene where the camera just holds on them as they go through these physical motions that the rest of the movie really goes away from by becoming darker and heavier. There's there's just this weight to the film yeah. that sinks down upon you and not in a way, uh, th- again, that's very revealing of anything new as it mm-hmm. gets heavier and heavier. But that scene between Ruffalo and Channing Tatum is really good. And so I, I would agree the movie had me in the first 10 minutes for yeah. sure. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, well, relatively new. It came out just around Thanksgiving, Foxcatcher, directed by Bennett Miller of Moneyball and Capote fame. It stars Mark Ruffalo and Channing Tatum, along with Steve Carell and his prosthetic nose. I want to talk about that scene a little bit in more detail. Actually, a scene that mirrors it later in the film, because it gets at, for me, what is the real theme of the movie and was really fascinating to me, if not enough to really carry my interest in the film throughout. It's these large themes the movie's dealing with. You touched on some of them in terms of American aspirations. You can talk about broadly the American dream and how this movie deals with it, about class, certainly in DuPont, and how he is markedly different than the Schultz brothers and where they come from. Just about insecure people in general. What happens, this movie shows you, when two men living in the shadows of others, and in this case it's Mark in the shadow of his brother Dave, his older brother, and then John DuPont living in the shadow of the DuPont family family and the legacy, and particularly his mother, though we Mm -hmm. only get a few scenes with her in this movie. What develops when they develop a codependent relationship, it's not good when you have those two kind of psychologically scarred people. More than anything, though, what this movie was about for me was the hell of life when it just doesn't come naturally to you when life just doesn't come naturally to you, when you feel like a misfit. And those are my favorite scenes. We get the one early where they're wrestling and they're warming up with each other. And you're right, Bennett Miller just really lets that camera kind of rest on those scenes and really let it be about the physicality of the brothers. Mm -hmm. And you can read in so much to what's going on as they're stretching. And there's just that, that instinctive nature of their relationship. Everything you need to understand about them as brothers and John as an outsider to this world of wrestling to this family is in the way he captures their movements and in a later scene captures their movements when John is watching them. You see him sort of standing five or so feet away from them as they're doing this warm up. And again, it's instinctive. Nothing has to be said between them. Their bond and their bodies just move mm-hmm. as one. And He'll never be able to feel that. He'll never be able to experience that, a bond like that, or simply move like that. Despite all his money, all the financing he's given to this team, all the logo wear, he's a misfit still, as you said. He's not going to fit into this group. He's not going to be able to be a wrestler, stages a tournament at one point that, you know, he fixes so that he'll win. Yeah. And still, that's that's not going to fill that need. You know, it makes me think also how good Ruffalo is in those scenes. I think he gives the best performance in the film. I do, too. And once again, it's the quietest performance. Yeah, and okay? I have a theory about that as and, well. And it's, you know, Carell isn't necessarily loud in terms of volume, but he's loud in terms of, again, the mannerisms, the space he's taking up, the affectations he's giving us. Tatum is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think he's really good here. He I is. think it's another case of him proving that he does have more range than he was given at the start of his career. Though it should be noted, this is also a performance very rooted in physicality, as the films are from Step Up to Magic Mike mm-hmm. with the dancing. But he uses that to his advantage. Yeah, and the way he walks simply when he's off the mat or on the mat, the way he moves, that is a case of him really just you you get a physical sense of that character and it 
says something, it expresses something about everything he is, yep. just in how he moves, yep. just in how he exactly. walks. Exactly. So, so he's a, a great physical actor, and I think he steps up to the plate, too, for some more traditional actorly moments. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the one later on in a hotel room of self-abuse in front yeah. of a mirror. You know, that that's the, that's the Oscar clip scene, but he pulls that off, too. And overall, I think he is really strong here. But yeah, Ruffalo... He's the one who takes away the movie, and he, he and he's in maybe, what, 20% of it? Well, I, I said I have a theory about that. I do want to note first that Mark, like DuPont, is that misfit as well. He's never going to be the wrestler Dave is, no matter how hard he works. He's never going to be the leader Dave is. Or the family man. They spend a lot of time man. on the fact that right. Dave has Socially, this family he's been able to create. Socially, he's awkward. He's distant. Again, the way Bennett Miller, in some really good scenes, at the beginning sets up who these characters are, when Channing Tatum walks into the locker room, Everybody instantly gets quiet. And it's not really completely out of a reverence for him. It seems to be almost a sense of they don't know how to act around him. Mm -hmm. And so they just stay out of his way, whereas they all gather around Dave and they all know how to really get along. He's a more gregarious personality. So then you've got Ruffalo. And I agree with you. He's my favorite performance in the film. But I almost think, Josh, it's not fair a little bit because he's also by default. I defy anyone. Pull 100 people, pull 1000 people who just walk out of Foxcatcher, ask them, who their favorite character in the movie is. You mean who do they like the most? Who they like the most, who they're rooting for. There's no doubt it's the Ruffalo character. He is really the tragic figure in some ways, the most tragic at the core of this movie. But there is also nothing forced about his performance because there's nothing forced about Dave Schultz. Again, going back to these misfits, there's nothing natural about what Mark does. There's nothing natural about what John DuPont does. But everything, everything Dave does just seems to come to him naturally. He really feels comfortable in his own skin. There's a scene where Mark is at odds a little bit with his brother more than normal, and he's watching tape of a wrestler, someone he's going to compete against, and Dave comes in, and Dave starts watching it. And within 10 seconds, he can't stop himself from trying to teach, from trying to point out something he sees in the video to give a little bit of instruction Mm -hmm. to his brother. That, too, just comes naturally to him. He is this leader. He is this natural teacher while those guys i mentioned mark and john again nothing comes natural to them so he feels so comfortable i think we're so comfortable watching ruffalo now could someone else play that role and not bring that sense of comfort to that that sense of naturalness probably well and also okay give me a choice between the three i'm going to share a cab with them yeah you're you know you're choosing the ruffalo character but at the same time i think he makes some choices about halfway through that uh put him a little bit out of the realm of likability in terms Mm. of the relationship and uh he he puts something ahead of the brother relationship well there's no doubt he does and you know that that's throws him a little bit in the same bag as the other two in terms of what is your motivation yeah and you you know that that is maybe one of the more interesting underlying themes here is when you hold up a good goal okay to represent america well and win a medal in the olympics but you're doing it for in dupont's case some really psychologically twisted motivations Mm -hmm. and he's wrapped patriotism up into that so the american dream aspect comes in there but also on the part of mark it is his motivation purely to win as an athlete or does he have other motives for sure not so so i think when you throw dave's choices in getting mixed up there as well he's perhaps you know not quite as likable well we're maybe heading into spoiler territory so we'll have to be a little bit vague and short here but i think that's a stretch only in the choices that character makes ruffalo's dave yes they may slight his brother but we see that his brother is pretty damaged and troubled and that maybe he shouldn't be 
paying as much attention to his brother as his brother wants. And the fact is, he's slighting his brother in favor of his own family and a sense of home for that family. He has good intentions. I, I think he's just such a good figure throughout this whole film that it's it's really hard not to like him. But Ruffalo nails that likability and everything he does. And there's no doubt that when there is a rift between them, again, going to be a little bit vague here, but when the rift really breaks open between them, what I do love is there's about three different emotions going on at once. It's not just that now his brother's here and it's not going to be about him anymore. The spotlight isn't on him. It's the fact that he tried to get his brother to participate once, and to your point, that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. He, as his brother, wasn't enough for him. It had to be something else. And also, there is this sense, as we talk about the American dream a little bit in class, this sense in a great moment that happens between Mark and DuPont early in the film, or about halfway through, where he says, my brother can't be bought. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> guess what? He has a price, too. Everybody does have a price. And I think that sense of disillusionment is also there with the brothers. And being proven wrong on that front is huge to Mark Schultz. I'll say this, even though there's a lot I like about the movie, overall, kind of negative about it. Not a movie I'm actually really recommending to a lot of people that they need to rush out and see. But I also remember that Moneyball was a movie I sort of half-heartedly liked when I reviewed it here on the show. And as I've said once or twice... I have since seen it on Mm -hmm. HBO like five times, and I watch it every time it comes on, and I love it now. So you think Foxcatcher might have to sit a bit? It may have to sit a bit. But let me ask you this. But it's a very different movie. Well, that's exactly it. And it's so filled with that dread we were talking about. Moneyball doesn't have that. Presumably you found more in Moneyball going on the second time around. Exactly. And I just don't know know if we picked apart at Foxcatcher much further, right. we'd find a lot more. Yeah, I don't know that there's the rewatchability factor to Foxcatcher. I agree with you there. Foxcatcher is out in limited release now. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Foxcatcher, maybe not the movie families will go see together over the holidays. Find out which big release was chosen for that honor in the film spotting poll up next, along with our top five discoveries of 2014. Stay with us. We never could shake it Like there's nothing to lose All the hearts that were breaking We pretended we Jumping in here quickly to remind you that this episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code FILM. A few weeks ago on the show, we were sharing donations and some thank yous, Josh, and we mentioned Timmy in Connecticut, who is a listener who solicited some feedback on wanting to get into film criticism, and he said he 
decided to keep his day job, but oh, yeah. he was starting to write about movies. And it turns out he's writing about them at a Squarespace-powered website. It's themovieandthescore.com. So, Not ikeptmydayjob.com? <laughs> it should be. Really, it should be every film critic's website <laughs> domain, I think. We also got a great testimonial from Nate Don't Call Me Stout Porter in Seattle, Washington. And Josh, that nickname goes back to 2006. Wow. Yeah. Nate's been around a while. And he says, out of my love of podcasts, my wife's willing spirit and our mutual fascination with the filmography of Nicolas Cage, our film review show, (laughs) CageCast, was born. I guess he couldn't call it In the Cage. Bottles of red wine may also have been involved, but who can really know for sure? (laughs) We quickly discovered that we needed a powerful yet simple site building tool. Powerful yet simple, like Nicolas Cage. (laughs) I added that. I had no idea where to turn until I heard about Squarespace on your show. What I appreciate most about Squarespace is how easy it is to make changes and updates to the site. As I'm sure you know, it takes a fair amount of time to watch the movies, do the research, and record and edit a podcast. Sounds like Nate needs to get a Sam. I would say so for a project like this. It's good to know that updating the website every week will be the easiest part of the process. Thanks again for film spotting. It's the highlight of my listening week. And just in case you want to take an in-depth look at the filmography of Nicolas Cage, please visit our Squarespace-built site, cagecast.com. <laughs> Think of it as the wildest 75-part film spotting marathon ever. Hey, 76 if they get to, what is it, Dying of the Light, the Schrader film with Cage? Yeah. yeah. Hey, Cage cranks them out. So, you he know, if does. you've got this concept, that's who to go with. <laughs> well, a few other key points we want to mention. Obviously, Nate touched on the ease of updating your Squarespace-built site. Everything is drag and drop. They have 24-7 support if you do run into any issues, and they are really design-focused. All their templates are extremely clean and allow your content to be the focus of your website. You can connect Twitter, Facebook, all your social accounts, and they also have have that commerce element if you want to sell something there via your site you can set up a shop and do just that and it all starts at just eight dollars a month which includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year so if you just want to run out and get that name i didn't quit my day job squarespace can help <laughs> hurry up start a trial with no credit card required just start building your website when you decide to sign up for squarespace make sure to use the offer code film to get 10 percent off and to show your support for film spotting squarespace everything you need to create an exceptional website there were ghosts in the forest and they're calling Do you want to tell me about some of your college experiences? Oh, my God. Think of another topic. How about art? Art? That's a good subject. You started off. You started off. I don't know anything about it. Well, what do you want to know about it? Are you interested more in modern art or in classical art? Neither. You're not interested in art? No. Then why do you want to talk about it? I don't. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. That scene from The Graduate should be very familiar to any listener of Film Spotting. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar, and I say that, Josh, but the fact is, every couple months, I get at least one email or we'll get a tweet or something on Facebook from someone who says, I've been listening to the show for years, was never able to completely place that clip. And I just watched The Graduate for the first time or rewatched it, and now I get oh, it. Oh, the, the one we use in yeah, the show, yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, they finally hear Anne Bancroft <laughs> there talking to Dustin Hoffman's Benjamin Braddock. It has been a fixture on the show since the very beginning, part of that theme. And 
Very sad to hear, of course, of the passing of the director of The Graduate, Mike Nichols. Of course, he made many other fine films. We'll get to a few of those here in a moment. News of Nichols' passing got to us the morning after we last recorded, so we really haven't had a chance to touch on it at all. He hadn't made a film since 2007's Charlie Wilson's War, but he had certainly been busy and acclaimed on Broadway. His revival of Harold Pinter's Betrayal with Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz opened just last year about this time, and he won his eighth Tony Award in 2012 for Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman. His debut film was the adaptation of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And that just came up recently on the show. It did. We did our top five nocturnal movies. It was in the intro, and that did give us a chance to hear Josh's drunken Elizabeth Taylor impression. Yeah, lovely, so, huh? Thank you for that. <laughs> a few other films from his filmography. I don't know, Josh, if any of these really stand out to you. I did really like Closer from 2004, even though I was a little bit mixed on Charlie Wilson's War. He also made Primary Colors, Angels in America on HBO, Working Girl from 1988 with Melanie Griffith and Harrison Ford. Of course, Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, those starting it all off. So Nichols, this is one of those filmmakers that I realize I've seen probably most of the wrong films from, and it's just a matter of the timing. You know, you when I started, <laughs> Wolf, I have seen. <laughs> I've seen, you know, Primary Colors, Closer, I don't remember being a huge fan of. I've seen Charlie Wilson's War, but, you know, some of these earlier ones I have not seen. Of course, The Graduate, despite that Pitch Perfect singing performance. I've never seen all of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, really? Wolf, so that's one, obviously, I'd have to get to first if I want to start catching up on these. Yeah, you do. Again, very sad news about the passing of Mike Nichols. We'll get to some bonus content this week. If you have the Film Spotting app, it's been several weeks since we've been able to fit that in. We do apologize for that. But if you have the Film Spotting app for iPhone or Android, you can get usually a little bit of extra audio. And as we are sharing on this week's show, our 2014 discoveries, why not balance that out, Josh, with a little ill will? and talk about some of our 2014 disappointments. Can't have too much positivity. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So we'll get to that in the bonus. And also we have the revival of Ask Film Spotting, even if Connor Kelly, our listener, didn't know he was reviving (laughs) Ask Film Spotting. I think that lasted one show. Ask Film Spotting? Did we do that? Was yeah. that me? I think it was. Was it? Okay. It wow. must have been riveting. Really, really memorable I'm glad stuff. we're bringing it back. But Connor sent us this really interesting question related to how you react as an audience member to the other members of the audience around you if they're annoying the crap out of you. Oh, boy. So we'll see if we can respond okay. to Connor's email there in our bonus content. Also, need to share a little bit of a correction as Josh, you sat here, I sat here. Sam, Candace helped us put the show together. Four of us all somehow, despite loving movies and loving movies for a long time, been doing the show for 10 years, somehow the term space opera mm-hmm. wasn't one any of us were overly familiar with because we used it a few weeks ago on the show in relation to our poll question. We were riffing on Interstellar and wondering if Christopher Nolan hasn't made sort of the answer to 2001, mm-hmm. which one of his peers could maybe someday, who's most likely to make that movie? And we sort of, for a shorthand, use the term space opera. And we got more than one listener who wrote in or tweeted to us. And Eric Otterberg was the first one on Twitter. He said, love the episode, got a question though. You refer to both 2001 and Interstellar as space opera. To me, those movies are not. Space opera to me is Star Wars, Flash Gordon, Star Trek. Am I wrong? I Googled it. Guess what? He's not wrong. Space opera does tend to have this fantasy camp element to it. Okay, It's not at all what Interstellar or 2001 is, and I'm not sure why we use that term, and we apologize. Deeply, deeply. Yes. It's it's an offense I will not probably <laughs> be able to sleep tonight, having committed. Okay. Well, we've addressed it, and we will move on now. Film spotting regrets the air. I'll go. 
Don't be ridiculous. You'll never make it. Why not? Because they will see you coming and kill you. No, they won't. They won't see me. It's out of the question. I won't allow it. I'm not asking you to allow it, Gandalf. Well, so much for my plan to not listen to or see any of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. You've got that Because you don't want it spoiled. You're anticipating it so much. You nailed it, Josh. Ian McKellen as Gandalf and Martin Freeman's Bilbo in that scene from The Battle of the Five Armies. That gets us into polls. Josh, last time we asked listeners to look ahead to the holiday movie calendar, movies in wide release between Thanksgiving and the end of December, and think about not what they're most excited to see, what they think is going to be the best movie, but the film they're most likely likely to see, really, given family obligations, dynamics, traditions, that kind of thing. You've got fruitcakes, mistletoe, Middle Earth. You don't ask why, Josh. You just do it. Just agree, and you get in the car, and you go. There you go. The question simply, which holiday spectacle are you most likely to see? I'll read the titles. You can give a little bit of info here, Josh. Exodus, Gods and Kings. Ridley Scott's Ten Commandments with Christian Bale in the Moses part. That opens December 12th. You've got The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Number three on Adam's 2014 top ten list. (laughs) Of course. The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, the first part of the last part of the three-part series. I think you've got that right. (laughs) Into the Woods, the big screen adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical. That's out wide Christmas Day. And Josh, another one out wide Christmas Day, The Interview. Obviously. James Franco, Seth Rogen, attempting to assassinate Kim Jong-un. Those were your options. We did not give you another. You have to pick one of those five. Josh, how did it come out? Do you think this is a reasonable box office prediction, too? So Ridley Scott should be worried because Exodus, last place, 12% of the vote. Yeah, I think maybe you can switch the top two, maybe. Okay. But this one is going to be potentially how it shakes out. Into the Woods also then would not fare well. It only received 13% of the vote. The interview, surprisingly, in the middle here with 17% of the vote. How many times did you vote, Josh? How many times? (laughs) I don't know. I did see the trailer. Backing off on that now. Up at the top here, Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, 27% of the vote. A little bit past that for the win, The Hobbit, 30%. 30%. Shocking me a little bit, I was going to say, that's got to be really... That The Hobbit beat out Mockingjay for that top spot. Well, listeners were... A little bit conflicted. We hear from Sarah, who says, usually our holiday film is a family consensus and not up to one person, which can be tricky. There is cajoling and indecision and promises of dinner to follow the film. So while my personal choice this year is the Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies, because it's the Battle of the Five Armies, for goodness sakes, I had to vote on the likely choice of my family catering to my sister-in-law's desire to see The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. It's always the sister-in-law. It's a movie I don't want or care to see but might have to if I want to spend some time with my whole family. Ooh, I sense some family tension in that one. Indeed. Thomas Dargent from Dakar, Senegal. He wrote in to say, The Hobbit hands down. To be honest, with Dakar's total lack of movie theaters, I have been off the grid for a while, but I am a sucker for Jackson's Middle-Earthian endeavors, even when they feature god-awful love triangles with unnecessary additional characters, a plethora of Gandalfus ex machina. He's got to trademark that. That's pretty good. And an overextended plot line littered with inventions of questionable quality. He's got to sell it here. You have to sell this one now, Thomas. <laughs> I love fantasy, and any opportunity to be transported into Tolkien's oeuvre is welcome. Frankly, I would have preferred to have a single The Hobbit movie. I'm with you, Thomas. But this is what we get, and I'll be damned if you won't find me at the movie theater the first chance I get, dragging my friends against their will if need be. Tolkien's oeuvre, the name of my next band. <laughs> 
Kevin Lanigan. I remember being in fifth grade when Lord of the Rings The Return of the King came out on Christmas Day. It was a mad dash to the theater to see how the saga of Aragorn, Frodo, Gandalf, and Gollum would conclude. And an 11-year-old me was immensely satisfied. Months were spent reminiscing about the film, re-watching my extended edition VHS's ad nauseum, and reenacting my favorite moments from the film on the playgrounds. I feel about these films the way many my age feel about Star Wars, and they have been a constant companion these past 13 years. This is the opposite of how I feel about the Hobbit films. They feel unfocused and dull with a cast of characters it is impossible to keep straight and a wasted Martin Freeman in a thankless titular role in a franchise he isn't even the star of anymore. I have three less seconds of screen time in the new Hobbit trailer than the Hobbit himself, and I'm not in the new (laughs) Hobbit trailer. I had marginal hopes for the second film until I saw that it heavily featured a Legolas love triangle, which kept me away from the theater altogether. So because of this, I bestow my vote on the film, which will most likely deliver on its potential the interview. So there's an interview vote, a default yep. vote <laughs> yep. for the interview. Just out of disillusionment with The Hobbit. <laughs> Billy Ray Bruton says, while I'm reasonably certain that either The Hobbit or The Mockingjay will take home the prize, my vote is for Into the Woods. For starters, it's been ages since Sondheim found his way to the big screen, and Into the Woods is certainly one of his best. Secondly, Meryl Friggin Street. Finally, this appears to be one of those perfect opportunities to take the fantastical art design of something like Alice in Wonderland and couple it with an actual story and narrative worth following. Rob Marshall is hit or miss with me, a self-professed musical theater geek, but I'll give him credit for knowing how to occasionally knock it out of the park. So while others will be immersed in the CGI spectaculars of the month, I shall be tucked away in a dark theater, giggling like a schoolgirl, and thanking the musical theater gods that Meryl Streep decided in her 65th year to play a witch. Very compelling case there, though, really, if you put Meryl Friggin Streep against the Battle of the Five Armies, who wins? Meryl Friggin Streep. Well, I agree with you on that. A few more here to get to. Nicole in San Francisco. Unfortunately, you need another category for the latest Night at the Museum property. I've already done the family poll, and this is where I'll be at Christmas time. At least there's popcorn. Nicole, I'm with you. I saw the trailer with the family. We saw it before Big Hero 6. You're in. You're all in. They're all in. It doesn't matter whether I am, Josh. That's where I'm going to have to be, unfortunately, on Christmas Day with my kids. We also heard from Bob Castle, who makes a really strong argument for a movie, Josh, that I didn't remotely consider putting in the poll. He says, why isn't Unbroken on here? It's the second film directed by Angelina Jolie. It's written by the Coen brothers, Richard Lagravenace and William Nicholson. He did Gladiator. Lagravenace did The Fisher King. It stars Jack O'Connell from Start Up and Donald Gleason from Frank. It's shot by the always great Roger Deakins, and it comes out right on Christmas Day. Did any of that change your mind or get you more interested in Unbroken? I'm interested in the film for all those reasons, but this is a prisoner of war drama. I mean, that... It's not what the family is going to vote for. That's a good point. So I, I, depends just, how, I just don't think it would have had a shot. Maybe it depends how young your family is. But I didn't know any of that. I knew it was Angelina Jolie. I did not know it had I all those I knew it was Jack either. O'Connell, which the time I first saw the Unbroken trailer, I hadn't seen Start Up yet. Mm. So he was just an unknown Face, yeah. and it didn't really matter to me. Now that I've seen Start Up, I'm more interested. But the Coen brothers' involvement, Donald Gleason, Roger Deakins... I don't know. Maybe I'm going to have to get a little bit more excited for Unbroken. One more note here from Patricia in Portland. Speaking of movies and holidays, one of the trailers before Mockingjay was for American Sniper, and the audience was totally there right up until the release date, 12, 25, 14. Then they booed. Me too. Who decided to release a movie about a sniper on Christmas? Although I'm guessing those of us who don't live in L.A. or New York will not actually see it until January. Just like I'm still waiting to see Foxcatcher, it comes out 1219 in Portland. Not that I'm counting. I hope you are still counting after our review. (laughs) Dispelled all that enthusiasm. Earlier in the show, American Sniper, I brought that up because I just saw that for the first time before Nightcrawler. And now that I've seen American Sniper, I can say 
assuredly that they did just take basically the first two minutes of the film and put it into the trailer. Okay. It's riveting. It's really riveting. Does the whole film live up to it? Let's move on. Oh boy. Let's move on before I say more <laughs> about American Sniper, which, as Patricia notes, doesn't really come out till Christmas Day. And I don't think it's coming out in Chicago, Josh, until later in January. So we'll have more time okay. to talk about that film. That brings us to our new poll and this week's question in which you, the listener, help us choose this year's Golden Brick. Last week on our Thanksgiving show, we did our Golden Brick preview special. We announced the shortlist for this year's award. We've whittled it down to six nominees, Josh, from 14, all of which we think best fit the new and improved criteria for the Golden Brick candidates, which actually isn't really all that new and improved. It's always sort of been the criteria and talked about over the course of five years never just really this neatly defined. So do you want to share it's that down neatly on paper defined? Now. Yeah, that neatly defined criteria is. So these films are generally underseen or overlooked. They have to have been reviewed on the show by at least one of us, not both of us necessarily, but given some time on the show by one of us, preferably from a new or emerging filmmaker. Also a movie that shows formal inventiveness or a distinct vision. We're looking for artistic ambition, something unique along those lines. And this is important too. Us talking about it in some sense helped to get it on your radar and maybe even motivated you to see it. So those are all the factors to put together that create the perfect Golden Brick winner. And we want you to help us pick it. We may even, in fact, let you pick it. Depends how well you perform here in the poll question. <laughs> the 2014 Golden Brick should be awarded to, Josh, the candidates are... Blue Ruin, Calvary, Dear White People, Mistaken for Strangers, The One I Love, or Startup... So we featured all those, talked about them in some capacity on that last special. We replayed your interview with John Michael McDonough, the director and writer of Calvary. We shared our review of Blue Ruin and also Start Up. The One I Love was a movie we famously had a little bit of a sparring match over, especially in the bonus content where we got into some spoiler territory. Mm -hmm. I'm a fan of that movie. You I'm graciously allowing it on the short list. <laughs> yes, you are. And then there are two movies that one of us hasn't seen. I still have not caught up with Dear White People. You have not caught up with, I believe, Mistaken for Strangers. I have. Oh, you have seen it. I have seen it. So how do you liked feel about it. it? I liked it quite okay. a bit. Maybe not quite as much as you, but it certainly belongs in this Golden Brick category and good on the shortlist. That is the movie that is ostensibly a documentary about the national, this band, but it really is more about the sibling rivalry mm -hmm. and how that all plays out. So that's Mistaken for Strangers. Those are the six candidates. And we will touch on briefly the ones we decided to leave off. There was one movie, Memphis, which we forgot to talk about on the preview special, but we thought deserved to be on the short list. But it was just too new. Obviously, our listeners really couldn't have reacted to that and had much time to seek it out. And then we had some that I think a lot of people listening are saying, wait a second, what about these movies? These three or four were probably a popular choice for the winner, Josh, of the Golden Brick, among a lot of our listeners, but we felt were maybe a little bit too big for the category. Those movies are Locke, Whiplash, and Listen Up, Philip. We also included the double. When you have actors like Jesse Eisenberg, like Miles Teller, like Tom Hardy and Locke, and Listen Up, Philip, a movie from Alex Ross Perry with Jason Schwartzman that mm -hmm. we talked about Elizabeth and Moss said how well. anticipated it was in advance of that movie coming out. Those just felt a little bit too big for the brick, perhaps. And then there were a few other candidates that maybe we just weren't passionate enough about, like Finding Vivian Mayer, The Congress, 20,000 Days on Earth. That's some of our reasoning here as we did take it down to just six candidates. Hopefully we did all right. We did hear 
about all of those movies in the feedback we got over the past week or so. And we want to know what you think. We want your vote for the Golden Brick Award winner. And I'll also touch on briefly, Josh, in that feedback, we did hear from many listeners who said, what about Under the Skin? Mm -hmm. What about Ida, the Polish film? And Frank, the movie starring Michael Fassbender. Again, I think... Any film that's starring Michael Fassbender, whether he's wearing a mask or not, is probably too big at this point. And same thing with Scarlett Johansson. Right. Huge name. And Ida, I believe the filmmaker's new to us... But he's made a handful of features and documentaries, so a track record That's a case where all three of those filmmakers, Glazer, the most well-known probably to most of our listeners, including Mm -hmm. us, because he made Birth and Before That Sexy Beast. But all three of those directors are pretty well-established, so didn't really feel like they fit for us. So again, Blue Ruin, Calvary, Dear White People, Mistaken for Strangers, The One I Love, or Startup. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And as always, if you do leave a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. Gotta love that theme music. You do. Good stuff. So the tale of the Princess Kaguya, I was so glad to be able to catch up with this, albeit via screener for the year-end consideration because it is going to end up as one of my favorites of the year. Just a beautiful, hand-drawn, animated film from Japan. The director here is Isao Takahata, and he brings a sense of simplicity to the images in this story. And it's based on a Japanese folktale, well-known in Japan, I understand, about a little girl who's found, tiny girl who's found by a bamboo cutter in a stalk of bamboo brought home. And he and his wife raise her and eventually push her into princesshood because they feel that's their duty since she has come from this magical beginning. Um, the, the animation here, it's so deceptively simple because you know all of the work and the layering and the levels that go into it, but it has almost a picture book quality. One of the things I love about the pastoral scenes is how they sort of just fade off at the edges of the screen into white, like they're from a picture book page. Um, A really nice touch. But what this is doing is perfectly echoing the underlying theme, which is overlooking the elemental nature of things in favor of the ornate. Again, this couple, specifically the father, wants her to be this princess and to have a better life than their rural life. And uh, so that's where the story is heading. And meanwhile, the animation is working the other way and saying, just, you know, pause, breathe, take in these seemingly simple details and enjoy them for what they are. And the first third of the film is just Kaguya as she grows up quickly because she's magical doing that in these forests. So there's a beautiful montage of her and friends singing and marching through the woods. And again, we get these details, whether they're mushrooms or a pheasant they're trying to catch and really immerses us in this. And then the second half takes place in a city, the capital, where the father has moved them, again, to seek these aspirations of making her a princess rather than a country girl, I believe, is the dismissive phrase he uses otherwise. So the animation as the movie moves on changes ever so slightly. There is a very, very drastic 
sequence that's my favorite in the film where it becomes downright impressionistic. She It's in a dream, tellingly. She flees this palace that's been built for her, and suddenly it just becomes a blur of brush strokes, and the robes that she's been piled upon her sort of bleed off her, and she's off into the woods and almost takes the form of a wolf. And it was just one of those things where I was enjoying the movie itself, and when that came about, I just, like, shot up, and you're just... What is going on here? Because it's such a huge change in terms of the style. Uh, So I really can't recommend it uh, any more highly, especially for fans, as I know you are, of Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies. Probably most well-known film, would you say? Grave of the Fireflies. Very different animation style this Hmm. has than that, however. Uh, And also notably a very different animation style from Takahata founded Studio Ghibli along with Hayao Miyazaki. And it's also very different from Miyazaki's work in in the the images were given and uh, uh, just the way the animation is is so delicate and maybe a little less busy. This is not to um, critique Miyazaki's work at all because I love what he does, um, but it does. This picture stands in stark contrast to that in just really intriguing, beautiful ways. Well, I haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet, but certainly plan to before the end of the year. And of course, you had me at Isao Takahata because of Grave of the Fireflies. And if you're somehow new enough to film spotting that you aren't familiar with that movie's history here on the show and you hear me call it a masterpiece and are encouraged to seek it out, I think this movie, you confirm for me, Josh, is one I can watch here with my kids. Yeah. That's great. Grave of the Fireflies? No. A movie your kids probably (laughs) should watch at some point, maybe when they're no longer kids. Don't throw that one in the DVD player for a family night. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really crushing, but in some of the best ways. So that is the tale of Princess Kaguya. It is Larson recommended. I killed him. I Cleveland. I killed him. Bullshit. When? I think yesterday. Dwight. I thought he'd kill me first. And I hope he's suffering. Excuse me. You got to catch up on yours? I don't. Love that scene from Blue Ruin making Blair as Dwight and Amy Hargreaves as his sister Sam in Jeremy Saulnier's Golden Brick nominated movie. And no, we're not playing that clip to talk about the Golden Bricks anymore. We can move on. But it's a great transition, we think, into this week's top five, our 2014 discoveries. We are in December officially now, Josh. This is the countdown to that time of year when we reflect on the year in cinema. We'll do a little bit more of that next week. And of course, the week after that, get to our top 10 roundtable show with Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias, as well as a few other guests we'll feature on that show. Blue Ruin and the cast in particular were both strong candidates for us when we were putting together this top five in terms of discoveries. Probably the new leaders, filmmaker, right? Yeah, new filmmaker, new actors, new faces to us. And we kind of decided that really, if we were going to have sort of an honorary list and we could put these off to the side rather than having too much redundancy, we would put Jeremy Saulnier and his cast from Blue Ruin and also Jack O'Connell from Startup would definitely make our top five. Yeah, Blue Ruin, you know, Saulnier was a cinematographer long before he became a director. And that film, Blue Ruin, might have one of my favorite shots of the year. Mm. It's the one where the knife, it's during one of the scenes where his main character is trying to escape and he jumps in the car and there's a knife has been stabbed in the wheel to flatten it. But he, he takes off anyway. And we just get this shot of that knife 
turning slowly as the car drives away. That one sticks in the mind. And yeah, Jack O'Connell in Start Up, I would have leaned towards him, O'Connell, as the discovery because it's such a amazing performance. It has that, it has Tom Hardy's animalistic madness from Bronson, right? Right. But then O'Connell also adds in this layer of um, a deeply human sense of of vulnerability that he brings to it. Absolutely. So we left those off, but have obviously tried to give them their due as we get into this list. And this was a hard one for me, Josh, only in the sense that I feel bad. And I don't know if it's my need to set expectations low or just I have this overriding sense of self-loathing that I feel the need to dismiss my list before it's even begun. But on Twitter, I was already feeling bad, actually, before we get to Twitter, because I'm looking at movies like Memphis, which you've seen, but I haven't, like Dear White People, which you've seen and I haven't, Force Majeure, a film I haven't caught up with yet, but a lot of people love, The Babadook, the horror movie everyone is raving about, a lot of movies that are still on my to-catch-up-with list over the next few weeks that very well could have some great discoveries in them. I can't weigh in on that now. But then I went to Twitter earlier today just for a last throw out before the taping. What am I overlooking? Mm-hmm. Who are some discoveries that I might be missing? And Calla Marsh, who is a critic I like reading a lot, Toronto-based. He's been on the show, left some voicemails before at the end of the year. He responded with this, Josh. Directors, Nathan Silver, Drew Tobia, John McGarry, Amanda Wilder, Eliza Hitman, Darius Clark Monroe, Lev Kalman slash Whitney Horn. So let me see. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight names I have never heard of and have no idea what they directed. You know what? That they don't exist. Oh, he just made him up. He's just he's just Callum, mess, he's messing with Callum you. is a provocateur. <laughs> I'm going to go with that theory, Josh. You so, feel better? <laughs> so you know what? There are probably a lot of great names we're overlooking, but I still think we've probably got between us some pretty good options here. Let's jump in. All right. So number five, it was mentioned when we talked about Golden Brick potential candidates. It is Pavel Pavelkowski, the director of Ida. Yes, he's made a number of other films, which is why we didn't put Ida up as a Golden Brick candidate. But this was the first I'd heard of him. This Polish film set in the 1960s about a young nun in training who's sent to visit her only living relative and aunt before she takes her vows. Actually, Agata Kuleitsa, who plays the aunt, she could be another discovery. She's the life force of this film, for me at least. It's a very engrossing story, especially how it's steeped both in personal and national history, but it's also really riveting to me because of its striking black and white mm-hmm. imagery. The two cinematographers credit here are Reisard Lensuski and Lukas Zal. Now, earlier when we reviewed Ida, I talked about how the aesthetic design, in addition to the religious setting, of course, recalls the work of Robert Brasson, and especially in this wonderful opening montage we get of a statue of Jesus being brought out to the convent's grounds. That hooked me right away, the way he used not only the imagery, but also the sounds in a similar way that Brasson did, and just the detail shots that he gave us. I knew this was going to be something special and certainly did turn out to be. So Pavlikovsky, he has made, I know he's made four other features. I think there's a handful of documentaries he's directed as well, but I was happy to discover his work for the first time with Ida, which is actually on DVD right now. You can also see it via streaming. Yeah, so it's if, on Netflix streaming. I is think. it on Netflix? Yeah. So a couple opportunities there for people to see it if they haven't yet. A great choice and a real discovery for me as well. My number five is Jenny Slate, the actress and her director, Gillian Robespierre from a movie called Obvious Child, a comedy, a dark comedy. I think it gets referred to a lot because it is dealing with some subject matter that you don't normally think of as all that funny, in this case, abortion. But we'll get back to that in a moment. Jenny Slate, people may know the name. I knew her sort of from Saturday Night Live, and I say sort of because she 
famously or infamously only had one season, didn't get a ton of airtime. Robespierre is brand new to me completely, and surely most of the world, Obvious Child, is her first feature. This was another popular title, Josh, thrown out by our listeners when we were casting the net for Golden Brick suggestions. Unfortunately, it was a movie I did see a few months ago, but never really had a chance to bring up on the show, maybe just in passing when it opened in theater. So didn't meet our criteria, but it is a really solid debut movie, and not just because the title is taken from a really great Paul Simon song. I love the song Obvious Child, which is featured in the movie. But the movie focuses on Slate as a stand-up comic in her 20s, sort of barely getting by. She meets a guy who could be great and they end up having a one-night stand that results in a pregnancy and most of the movie is her trying to figure out how she's going to break this news to him that not only did she get pregnant but that she is planning to have an abortion. Amanda Hess summed it up really nicely in a piece over at Slate. She said, this is a romantic comedy where the girl gets an abortion and gets the guy. Along the way, she doesn't even have a change of heart, contract a nasty infection, or succumb to a tragic death. That makes Obvious Child a run-of-the-mill story for a woman in America, but an exceedingly rare tale for a woman on film. So, considering that, depending on your politics, you might have an issue or two with this movie. Maybe it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. But there is no doubt that Hess is right. It's unconventional in the way it doesn't mine abortion purely for tragedy. There's a real fearlessness to the movie that I think does start with Slate in the lead. She has a certain rawness to her, and she can be the kind of emotional train wreck on screen that's very fun to watch. Every moment just seems kind of up for grabs, and you don't know where it's heading. I can't believe he walked into the store. That's a sign. And that would be a sign saying... Like that I'm a president in a box and that he and I should go and start our beautiful life together. You know, I'm not a straight guy. Oh, what? <sighs> but my guess is that most of them would hate that gift. What? You're saying that <laughs> a guy doesn't want a drunk pregnant girl in a box? Uh, if you're a serial killer. It is out on DVD now. Netflix has it as well. It's streaming digitally on various platforms, including iTunes, if you do want to catch up with it. And... I looked at what's next from both Robespierre and Slate. Unfortunately, Robespierre doesn't have anything showing up on IMDb. I hope that gets rectified soon. But Slate is going to appear in the next Joe Swanberg movie. He's actually made seven movies just during the taping of the show. <laughs> I believe so it. So maybe not that big of a deal, but it's a movie called Digging for Fire. It's set to come out in 2015. Big ensemble cast, like a lot of his movies have, but not all of them, certainly. A lot of the recent ones have had only four or six kind of key roles. Fifteen names, Josh, on the IMDb page for Digging for Fire. I'm just going to list you some of the key ones, the ones that really jumped out to me, in addition to Jenny Slate, Anna Kendrick, my guy Jake Johnson, Brie Larson from Short Term 12 fame, Sam Rockwell, Chris Messina, Sam Elliott, Rosemarie DeWitt. This is... Not too a bad. murderer's row of sort of indie film mm -hmm. stars and Sam Elliott and... That cast certainly makes that movie one I want to see. But now I'd throw Jenny Slate into there just based on Obvious Child. It's a movie that has some promise for me because of her as well. Yeah, Slate is someone I wasn't familiar with from Saturday Night Live, but I did know her from Parks and Recreation. Oh. She had a recurring role, not the sort of part that would ever want you to see her in anything again. It's like the most annoying character in that series on I can purpose. See that. Yeah. On purpose. But uh, Obvious Child, that's when I have to catch up with myself. My number four is Justin Simeon, the writer-director of Dear White People. Reviewing this film with Tasha Robinson recently on episode 514, she and I spent a lot of time on Simeon's influences as a first-time filmmaker. Tasha had interviewed him previously for The Dissolve, where she was able to ask him about that. But we also both noted the unique voice that uh, he's bringing to the cinema. It's one that it really engages and raises divisive issues in a satirical and biting way, but somehow he makes it 
non-confrontational as well, a, a unique quality he seems to have. Dear White People is set at a fictional and predominantly white Ivy League college where a handful of black students are struggling in different ways to establish an identity that feels authentic. I'm probably most excited about Simeon from this film because he shows real visual ingenuity in it. Much of the comedy relies either on the editing or on the placement of the camera. He has some fun with on-screen titles as well. The writing itself, at times it gets a little bit talky, but I believe I, I have the sense that will smooth out over time. You know, it's good to see that he's got the camera instinct right there already. Uh, Dear White People, as we mentioned, is a Golden Brick nominee. It is still playing in a handful of theaters. I think I saw about maybe 30 across the country, so not available to many listeners, unfortunately. But if it is near you... It's one that you want to see with an audience, if at all possible. Mm. So Certainly one I am still trying to pencil into my schedule before it leaves town here. My number four pick, Josh, you kind of ruined it a little bit with your comments about Jenny Slate. I was going to throw out to the listeners how we both don't spend much time watching TV, but apparently you do. You watch Parks and Rec. I really don't get to see really any television whatsoever, which explains why I had never heard of Anthony or Joe Russo, the Russo brothers, who this year made Captain America, the Winter Soldier. They did make one feature film. I think it was their only prior feature film, Josh, that came out in 2002. Welcome to Collinwood. And beer is on me if you can name one star of Welcome to Collinwood. Sam Rockwell. Can you name more than one? You got it. George Clooney? Yes. I would like to say that's because I love Welcome to Collinwood. William H. Macy. That is about... The extent of my recall abilities when it comes to that film. I owe you multiple beers now. Very impressive. I knew nothing about Welcome to Collinwood. Certainly didn't see the movie. But they really are better known for their TV work as directors on Happy Endings, Arrested Development, and more recently, Community. I was doing a little reading about them. And not surprisingly, because you wonder, how did these guys, these TV guys, get picked to helm this sequel to this huge franchise, this big moneymaker? And it turns out, not surprisingly, they had to really push Marvel to hire them. They pursued this project and did eventually convince them. I'm guessing Marvel's happy with that decision now. Domestically, it's made $260 million, second at the box office only to Guardians of the Galaxy. It's got an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, so critics really went for it as well, including the two of us. It's really good. It's actually one of my favorite films in that Marvel series so far, and I wrote a little bit about it on Letterboxd at the time and talked about it briefly on the show, but I really have no business caring about a Captain America movie. Back when I used to read comic books, never cared yeah. about Captain America. Everything about the costume, what he stood for, I wasn't a jaded totally with you. non-patriot, and yet somehow it just seemed too hokey for me. And even here, as you're watching this movie and you're seeing Chris Evans in these two films, I did compare him to basically that great SNL skit where Joe Montana, his character is named Sincere Guy Stew, where he's got an inner monologue, but he's so bland and so honest that everything he says is actually what he's thinking. So at one point... The character says to him and his date, I think, hopefully we won't disturb you. And he says, oh, you won't disturb me. I'll be in my room masturbating. <laughs> That's sincere guys, too. Well, you know what? That's Chris Evans as Captain America in these movies. And yet he is such an interesting, dramatic character. And I look at the end of the film. Do the Russo brothers go overboard with the chaotic CGI filled sort of spectacle? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. But up until that point, it's a really, really effective movie with good action scenes and solid character studies. It's all just rooted in the characters more than anything. And how often can you say that about a good action movie? And with a complete straight face, I can say this. I just recently caught up with the Laura Poitras documentary about Edward Snowden, Citizen Four. And I'll tell you, 
you can double feature these two movies. Oh, I believe it. The next time, Josh, you're planning a romp through the perils of data mining and the cost of losing privacy in the name of defense. I know that's your normal Friday night. Yep. You can put on Captain America and Citizen Four, and they make sense well, it's together. A, it's a 70s paranoia thriller, yeah. too, right? So, yeah. yeah that yeah. element's there, without a doubt. The only other comic character that I probably cared less about before this rash mm-hmm. of Marvel movies was Iron Man. Yeah. And that worked, too. Robert Downey Jr. can have that effect. And that I helps. should point out that the Russo brothers, Marvel was apparently happy with the result. They've hired them to do the third film Very in nice. the Captain America series. Captain America, I believe Civil War is what it's called. You can look for that probably in 2016. We'll wrap up our list of the top five 2014 discoveries when we come back. My number one, Adam, that love is stronger than gravity. How dare you? Stay with us. Are you behind the shining star? Am I as hopeless as you are? Well, I'm sleepless in my better nights. You promised that you wouldn't fight. Stay where we are. get to our customary thank yous in a moment, but also want to feature our customary artist of the week. From Duluth, Minnesota, you're hearing Trampled by Turtles, the songs Ghosts and Are You Behind the Shining Star. From the 2014 album Wild Animals, you can see them on tour this month, starting down in Charlotte, North Carolina on the 9th and making their way through much of the southeast before heading back north to Milwaukee for a New Year's Eve show. More information at trampledbyturtles.com. Let's get to some donations, Josh. We start with a gold-level donor right here in Chicago. That would be Jason K. And two new $10 a month subscribers. Thank you so much, Susanna in Glen Ellen, Illinois, and Shannon in Paris. That's Paris, France, not Thank Paris, you. Texas. And it was not only a $10 a month subscription, but she made a one-time donation as well. Sent us a really nice email recommending the Xavier Dolan film, Mommy, Josh, which as of this taping is screening tomorrow okay. for us Chicago film critics. For eligibility. For eligibility for our awards. It was a big hit at the Cannes Film Festival. I think it shared the top prize with the Gidar film. I'm out of my space here a little bit, but remember. I think so. I'm dying to see it. Shannon highly recommends it. And yet? I will not be at that screening. Doesn't fit with my schedule. Are you forsaking it as well? I might try it. I have to see. I'm booked to see Moses' movie tomorrow. Really? Yeah. Exodus? Yeah. So I'm not sure Let's make if that the right conflicts choice here, Josh. with Let's make it the right or choice. if it's before it and maybe I can squeeze it in. Okay. Well, it is in the morning, I believe, but now this is all just stuff that pertains to only the two of us, and I don't know why. <laughs> Should we're we talk about, about it. Thursday's schedule too maybe. while we're doing it? <laughs> Shannon, send us that nice note. Also, just a really great note about how just by far I'm the best host of the show. I mean, she's just Team Adam all the way. I don't except, believe that. Yeah, except for Interstellar. Well, 
She hurt me. So where it counts. Shannon cut me. Shannon's right. She cut me really deep. (laughs) A new silver club donation as we get international here. Micah in Cairo, Egypt. Over the past year, I've become a more dedicated listener to your great podcast, rarely missing an episode and often constructing my own viewing list derived from your programming. I've been living abroad for over five years now, with most of that time spent in Bogota, Colombia, and now Cairo, Egypt. I'm an artist and teacher and have always considered myself a cinephile. In each of my foreign positions, I've had long commutes to work, and these gridlocked rides eventually got me hooked to your banter and insightful commentary. Nothing passes the time better than listening to your podcast and gazing out the bus window to the worst traffic catastrophes you could ever imagine. The ridiculousness of what I see on the road is too long to list, but know how grateful I am I can think about film while ignoring it the best I can. Well, I'm really intrigued. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind hearing Pictures a few or of those it didn't stories. Happen. And those would help us as the snow comes to Chicago True. and we get stuck yeah. in We'll start experiencing traffic. that ourselves. A new Bucka Show donor, $1 for every show of the year. 52 shows. Ben in Newton, Kansas. I don't know if it's better than my Newton, Iowa, but whatever. It is Newton, Kansas. Other donors, Kevin in Fullerton, California. Leslie in Mississauga, Ontario. And Ryan in Portland, Oregon, who says, Our hard work, passion, and sense of fun are greatly appreciated. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, and we do appreciate all the support we get from all of our listeners and all of our donors each and every week. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. Allison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. On our latest episode, Matt Singer and I revisit a simpler, less gritty era when Batman was a quirky, not completely ripped weirdo who was allowed to crack the occasional joke as we dig into Tim Burton's Batman Returns. And in honor of Michelle Pfeiffer's memorable turn as Catwoman in that film, we'll recommend a few more movies featuring anti-heroines, all available to rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hey, I'm Ty Sheridan. And I'm David Gordon Green, the director of the film Joe, and we're here on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam, and it is December, which means we're beginning those lists, Josh, that reflect on the year in movies. We're sharing our top five discoveries, actors, directors, whoever, whatever it might be that was new to us in 2014, and hold some promise for us as we hope to see these people or these elements in future movies. My number five pick was Gillian Robespierre, the director of Obvious Child, along with her star, Jenny Slate. My number four were the Russo brothers who gave us Captain America, the Winter Soldier. My number five was Pavel Pavelkovsky, the director of Ida. And my number four was another director, writer-director, actually, of Dear White People, Justin Simeon. So for our radio listeners, if you want to hear our takes on those picks, you can find the full version of the show, plus this week, we did share a bonus review of Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. You can get all that at filmspotting.net or iTunes. We get back to the countdown. Our top three, Josh, who do you have? It's Someone from Under the Skin, a movie that will probably come up a little further on our mm-hmm. year-end list. 
There were many good things about Jonathan Glazer's alien abduction deconstruction with Scarlett Johansson as a predator with her own sort of body weaponry. (laughs) I particularly, though, loved the music, which was by Mika Levy, and it's full of distant hums, weird little squiggly strings, sudden thumps that come out of nowhere. Even the most normal of these working-class Scottish settings that we get where a lot of the film takes place, they have this unnerving quality because of those audio elements going on in the background. Levy is an English singer-songwriter who performs with her band as Mikachu and the Shapes. It's experimental music. Uh, I understand sometimes they use homemade instruments. I checked out a couple of their videos online, and yeah, it's it's pretty trippy stuff. I don't know that I'll be buying a lot of Mikachu and the Shapes albums, no. but hmm. if Mika Levy went on to score other films, I'd be very happy about that really unique sound. I agree, and I love that element of Under the Skin, among many elements I love in that movie, and when I knew that you were going to go with that option, Josh, I knew again that you'd won this top five. I really did, just wanted to throw in the Did you look up some of the music? From other stuff that Mika Levy has done? No, I hadn't, but I'm with you completely on the score for Under the Skin. My number three is a director, and listeners may remember his name coming up back in October when we did our Chicago Film Festival preview show. The movie This Afternoon played at the fest and was one of my recommended picks. The writer and director is Stephen Cohn. Chicago-based filmmaker and teacher. I discovered him this year through Michael Phillips. He did an article about Cone in the Chicago Tribune, and that made me immediately go to Netflix, where I watched his movie The Wise Kids, I think from 2011. Sounds right. And it's still available streaming on Netflix and other platforms. And it's this coming-of-age drama, which we've seen a million of, and it's this religious story where you have characters kind of dealing with faith issues, and they're just about to go off to college. They're in this transition period from high school to college. And like I said, you feel like you've seen it so many times before, and yet something about this movie really felt fresh and new to me and didn't feel like it went for the easy kind of melodrama that these types of movies often do. It just felt really smart and honest. That made me go out and get his other feature, Black Box, which came out in 2013, unfortunately not really readily available. And along with this afternoon in 2014, he made The Mystery of Life, which is a more experimental 60-minute film that I still need to watch. And then he's got another film, Josh, coming out in 2015 called Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. It stars Pat Healy. So definitely a lot of things in the works for Stephen Cohn. And when we talked about this afternoon back in October, I mentioned that it was adapted from a short he made as part of a cinema lab course at Acting Studio Chicago. He's an instructor there. And the way he is able to deal with tricky subject matter like religion, a lot of discomfort like adultery, like other sexual issues that come up in this afternoon, but he deals with them with a real sense of respect. And there's comedy there as well. There is a lot of humor he's able to derive from these situations. And there are those awkward moments. There are moments of real discomfort. But what I love about him is the way he doesn't really do it to to kind of push your buttons. He is really exploring some really tangible, grounded issues. And I really look forward to seeing what he's going to do next. Obviously, Henry Gamble's birthday party coming out. Hopefully that will get a release where I can espouse his work to more people and they can actually catch up with his films. But as I was going through the year and looking back on the movies I really enjoyed, it did occur to me that what Stephen Cohn does next is something I'm really going to be paying attention to. All right. My number two is a film and a filmmaker that I was just able to catch up with in the last few days with this year-end rush of seeing as much as possible. It's Jennifer Kent, the writer-director of The Babadook. 
Now, there's some really effective horror films that have been built around motherhood. Rosemary's Baby, of course. I also really like Dark Water, the Jennifer Connelly film. I like film. that movie, too. Uh, the Conjuring, I think that was last year, maybe the year hmm. before, has that element going on as well. Well, you can add The Babadook to that list. It's about a working single mother of a little boy who's suffering from night terrors. And there's this creepy pop-up picture book about the Babadook that they read, which pushes the kid over the edge and then eventually her as well. Her continual refrain is something that I think most parents can relate to. I just need some sleep. <laughs> she says that a couple times in the film. Kent is an Australian filmmaker, and she worked as an actress for about 10 years and then spent the last 10 or so getting into directing. So this is her first feature. It's based on a short film she made, and it does feel like a first film here and there. But she also has a real flair, not only for how to handle the horror staples that you'd come to expect, but also in using the camera to capture a little bit of dark humor here, too. Uh, there's this one point where she and her son, they've just got to get out of this house. So they go to a restaurant, want a little peace and quiet. And, of course, they're seated next to a family of screaming children, which Kent just captures as one great establishing shot. The movie does go beyond motherhood, really, and taps into that dark side that any parent can feel creeping up within them when parenthood has just left you at your wit's end. Uh, the mother is played by Essie Davis. She could be a discovery, too, as a matter of fact. It's this increasingly unhinged performance that it's never goes too far, or gives you too much, just enough, even for a horror film. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. <laughs> a rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Babadook. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. Mum, does it hurt the boy? Mum, does it live under the bed? Mum? So The Babadook is still in theaters. It's also streaming, but like any good horror movie, try to see it in the theater if you can. I'm probably not going to be able to see it in the theater. Going to have to watch it at home, but I'm going to have to watch it with the lights on and with my <laughs> wife nearby. Good idea. I'm often terrified. Is this movie going to scare me? Um, well, yeah, the rule of thumb I have for the ones that really work is if I wake up in the middle of the night and spend a little time thinking about it. Great. That happened. I don't need to Bobadoc. wake up in the middle of the night thinking about <laughs> horror movies. I'm never seeing <laughs> this movie. <laughs> thinking about discoveries a little bit, Josh, I realized that part of the joy of watching movie stars on screen, people you do know, is seeing these familiar faces and all the baggage that they carry with them on screen. That can be one of the pleasures. And sometimes the pleasure comes from seeing those familiar faces playing with their personas a little bit, maybe trying to subvert the baggage that you bring to the table with those actors. But I have seen three recent performances that reminded me just how much fun it is to really discover somebody, to see a face that is completely foreign to you playing a character in a key role who's a bit mysterious anyway, so you love not bringing any of that baggage to the table with them. There's just this sense of pure discovery where you're not even paying attention to the mechanics of the performance. You're just locked in and following the character. So I'm cheating a little bit here. I have a trio of what I'm calling, Josh, my scene-stealing unknowns. Riz Ahmed from Nightcrawler, Luke Grimes from American Sniper, and Elias Gabel from A Most Violent Year. Those last two, American Sniper and A Most Violent Year, have not come out yet and i think probably aren't 
going to come out here in Chicago until January. But all three of those cases have those actors not only having to do some pretty heavy lifting, but they're doing it against some really formidable co-stars. In Nightcrawler, Riz Ahmed is playing against Jake Gyllenhaal, who's really good. Career performance. Career performance, probably, in Nightcrawler. You've got, in A Most Violent Year, Elias Gabel playing against Oscar Isaac, one of my favorite screen presences we have going right now. And in American Sniper, Luke Grimes is playing against Bradley Cooper, who I'm not in love with as an actor, but certainly as a presence on screen and someone who inhabits that role of the sniper Chris Kyle, he does deliver. I look back at their filmographies because, again, totally new to me. It turns out that Riz Ahmed has been pretty busy since 2006. I'd seen him actually in the movie Four Lions and Centurion without knowing who he was, obviously. Luke Grimes, his first movie was All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, which I didn't see. A few others he's made. He was also in Taken 2, and he's got the Fifty Shades of Grey movie coming out. Not one of the stars, but I think in a key role. And then Gabel, I didn't recognize him as an administrator in Interstellar, Josh. I don't know if you remember Administrator. No, that, that, key doesn't, role. that doesn't sound familiar, but I bet he explained things. I'm sure he did. I knew you had to get a jab in there. He was also in World War Z and has been in Game of Thrones. We're going to talk more about A Most Violent Year and American Sniper, I think, as the months go on. But these characters, all three of them, are kind of the moral consciences of the movies they're in, even if... Riz Ahmed in Nightcrawler and Gabel in A Most Violent Year aren't necessarily the brightest or most well-put-together characters, but there's a fragility and a vulnerability they all exude against the tougher exteriors of their co-stars, and they just don't have the clear sense of purpose that the stars of those movies have, those characters do, but they do have a sense of their own kind of moral code and ethics that makes them really strong characters, really fascinating characters, moment to moment in their respective movies. The one I've seen of those is Riz Ahmed and Nightcrawler, and you're right about having to go up against the star at the top of their Mm -hmm. game because there's that climactic confrontational scene. Well, it comes just before the climax, I guess, when they're stalking somebody in the car and and Gyllenhaal kind of puts it to him either you're in or you're out and uh, yeah he rises to the occasion in that scene and all the others he's really strong grimes plays an american sniper uh fellow navy seal though a little bit conflicted and in a most violent year gabelle is a driver in oscar isaac's company which they deliver gas to homes and really the movie opens with him his character is a key through line in the movie and it's a really good performance all right we're down to number one and at that slot i have a duo it's tim sutton and willis earl beale Sutton is the writer-director, and Beale is the star and composer for Memphis, the small indie film that I reviewed, I think, two or three shows back now. Uh, Their collaboration resulted in what's going to be very high on my top ten list, I'm sure. Still have some things to catch up with, but this tiny indie really moved me. It's about an alt-blues musician who's trying to think his way out of a creative slump while he wanders around the city of Memphis hanging out with various other musicians. He plays some dominoes. He meets some barflies and generally is just being metaphysical. There's a very metaphysical element to this film. I'm including both of them for a couple of reasons here. I'd never heard of Tim Sutton, and I'm now eager to catch up with his previous film. It's called Pavilion and also see what he does next. And I'm now hooked on the music of Beale. He was a musician well before this film. They incorporate some of the songs he has already written into it. And it's this spacey, airy blues that's gorgeous on its own, but it also gives the movie a celestial sort of scratchiness that's perfect for what they're up to. (laughs) 
Uh, last year's album of Beals, Nobody Knows, that's the one I've been listening to a lot lately. Also, from what I've read in interviews with Sutton, I came across a few of them, and it sounds like this was very much a cantankerous collaboration. They had friction over the aims of the film, the working styles between him and Beale, and I think you can feel that in the movie itself, but mostly in good ways. Uh, this is a movie about seeking things in vain, so there's some frustration built into what it's trying to do, and that tension is also palpable on the screen, so maybe a little bit of that comes from the exasperation of their collaboration. I saw this on Vimeo On Demand, and it's still there, available to rent, if you do want to check it out. I do, of course, and yet another one from your list, Josh, that is going to have to still be a discovery for me. My number one discovery of 20 2014. It's an actress in a supporting role in a movie I love, making her screen debut. So certainly new to me and new to most people, though, if you're from Chicago and saw her maybe in a Steppenwolf production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or you saw her on Broadway, you may have also seen her in a recurring role on The Leftovers on HBO. I did not. So for me, the first time seeing Carrie Coon on screen was in David Fincher's Gone Girl. She plays Nick's sister, Ben Affleck's sister, Margot. And for me, Josh, Forgetting the performance for a second, the character is really, for me, the fly in the ointment for all the people charging misogyny because of the quote-unquote negative portrayal of women in that film. You've got her, the sister, and also the detective in that movie, and I remember pointing this out in my review over at Letterboxd, and one commenter said, yeah, I was holding on to the sister who was my favorite character and the detective, but as a friend pointed out, they were totally ineffective. (laughs) And... I guess that's the way we're judging characters now, because Margot was just the sister who couldn't do anything to solve this insanely complex web of lies and murder. She's a poor representation of women. I don't get it. What she is, is human, who in this case is powerless, as so many characters in the movie are, and who is confused and who isn't sure what to believe moment to moment, but tries her best to be supportive to her brother and to hang on to whatever she, at her core, what she thinks she believes in. I feel sick. It's so bizarre. It just, it seems like the kind of thing that would happen to Amy. She always attracts things. Drama? You can say it. It's just me and you. Just because I don't like to be around Amy doesn't mean I don't care about her. Anyway, whoever took her is bound to bring her back. And she could have fit in nicely with my last pick in terms of talking about characters who are kind of the moral centers of their movie. She's not overly damaged, not blatantly damaged the way everyone else seems to be in Gone Girl, but she certainly isn't slow or uninteresting. She's not there ever to be just a sounding board for her brother. She really pushes the Nick character as well. I just think, based on that one performance, Carrie Coon certainly has the goods and is one of those actresses who could play virtually any type of role on screen. You could give her a lot of different things to do. I think it'd be very hard to typecast her as one type of performer. So, Carrie Coon, my discovery of the year, really, in movies, and I am a little bit disappointed to go to IMDb, and despite a lot of acclaim she's getting, not just from me, but from a lot of others, doesn't have anything on the Hmm. slate on IMDb currently. Of course, maybe they're just not up to date, but I certainly hope she gets a lot more screen work. Yeah, that needs to change. She stood out to me, too, in Gone Girl. I'll give you her in your defense against the misogynistic claim argument for sure, although I don't buy the misogynistic claim. I do buy the male chauvinism claim a little bit, and I think the detective isn't quite so helpful there. That's kind of a macho part, but Kuhn's part... That, so women can't be macho works. now no, either. No, that's not what I'm saying. But <laughs> okay. if you're looking for for a uh, a positive feminine presence in the film, she's Coons, very positive. Coons is it? Okay, 
We will not digress. We don't want to derail this top five. Even though I think you're crazy. Those are our top five 2014 discoveries. Josh, what about some honorable mentions? So I had a filmmaker from Spain who has also established but was new to me, Gabriel Vlasquez, who made Artico. This is a film that we both saw as part of the Chicago International Film Festival and really appreciated. Another name that came to mind was Gary Poulter, who had a supporting part in David Gordon Green's Joe, a very villainous performance from a completely novice yeah, actor that totally new. stole the film. Unfortunately, Poulter's since passed away, so that will be the only performance we'll have of his. Also, he might appear on one of my acting lists as we get to those. So Fair I enough. thought I'd just use him as an honorable mention here. Well, I have a few, Josh, that you've already mentioned. Mika Levy, the composer for Under the Skin, Pavel Pavlikovsky, the director of Ida, and I'm with you as well on Gabriel Velasquez. Made a few movies, but Artico was the first one for both of us. A few others I do want to throw out real quick. First-time directors, Charlie McDowell, the one I love, Dan Gilroy, been around a while, been a writer in Hollywood, but first time making a movie as a director, Nightcrawler. New faces, more of them, Evan Peters from X men days of future past david oyelowo he's in a most violent year he's also the principal in interstellar i'm sure he explains way too much for you josh and stacy martin from nymphomaniac the lars von trier movie some faces i should have known or directors i should have known dennis vilnova enemy a movie i liked a whole lot more than you i also really like jake gyllenhaal in that movie that was my first film from that canadian filmmaker please send us your picks or any other comments about the show feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 or find us on twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting out in limited release this weekend the movie you certainly recommend josh and i still need to see playing at the gene siskel film center the tale of princess kaguya this is an animated fable from isao takahata the director of Grave of the Fireflies. Also, somewhat interested, Josh, in seeing Wild. This is the new film starring Reese Witherspoon about a woman with a tragic past who goes on a thousand-mile hike. I hope it's just as uplifting and moving as Dallas Buyers Club, the last film from that director, Jean-Marc Vallée. That was a quick turnaround for him, huh? No kidding. Yeah, been very busy, apparently. Out in wide release. Really? Wide release? Dying of the Light? The Paul Schrader-directed Nicolas Cage movie. And yes, I would normally want to see a Paul Schrader-Nicolas Cage collaboration, so... I need to become more familiar with Dying of the Light. Also, Pyramid is out. This is a horror movie about U.S. archaeologists who discover an ancient pyramid buried beneath the Egyptian desert. Next week on the show, we're reviewing my most anticipated movie of the year, No Pressure, Inherent Vice. Can I just rub it in and say that I saw it earlier today? I know, and you you saw it on the big screen. Yeah, that's right. I hate you. (laughs) I really do. We're also going to be sharing a best of 2014 show, kind of random stuff. If you're familiar with our rap parties and... If you're a listener of the show, whether you attended or not, you could hear the download of that or hear it on the radio. We're not going to be doing a wrap party this year in January. Unfortunately, can't fit it into our schedules. We are planning to do another summer live show, so we'll have more information about that as we get closer. But we were thinking the kind of stuff we did at the wrap party, those categories like our favorite scenes of the year, most moving moments maybe. There's a whole... Yeah, just fun extras. That's array always of things. been a great show to do yeah. because of those odder categories. So looking Indeed. forward to that. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is from Trampled by Turtles. comes from their 2014 album Wild Animals. More information is at trampledbyturtles.com. 
for Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Josh? Didn't recognize me with the fake nose, did you? I guess not. Well, this week, we'll, sorry, bad acting. Bad acting. Let's do this again. Let's try Tired again. acting. Tired acting. We'll start at the beginning. <laughs>